Well, good morning. Good morning. You ready to wrap up the uh, conflict series? Some of you are probably ready to be done with this, right? Tired of being a challenged. Well, sorry. That's, uh, that's sort of what we do here. We, uh, we look at the scriptures and it has a way of convicting us and challenging us. It can be painful sometimes, but it's for your good. It's for your good. It's for my good. And I gotta be honest, I am a little nervous this morning. You guys ever get nervous? You know, you get the, the butterflies in your stomach and there's a little bit of nerves, but also a little bit of excitement. It's kind of how I feel this morning because the text we're dealing with, it's been used um, to justify some not so great stuff over church history. Uh, it's been misapplied in a way that's caused a lot of damage and destruction within the church as opposed to building up the church. So I'm nervous about that. I don't, I don't want to contribute to that. I don't want to be a part of any of those misunderstandings at all or, or destroying the church. I don't want anything to do with that. But along with those nerves, I'm excited. I'm excited because the principles that we're going to look at are not flawed. They're actually really, really good. You see, the problem arises when we fail to apply what we're going to learn about in the proper way. When we're not guided by the Spirit of Jesus living inside of us, when we're not guided or guarded by the love of Christ for our fellow man, that's when the problems creep in. So, if we learn properly this morning, if we learn how to apply what Jesus teaches us, there is an incredible potential for us as believers. Huge potential that God could bless our congregation and you individually in unimaginable ways. You see, within the verses that we're going to look at, there is kind of this, it's not really a secret, but there is this exponential power for church growth. Numerically, so we get more people rubbing shoulders, but also personally, that we might go deeper into the faith and grow closer to Jesus. There is held within these verses a very transformative power that's waiting to be unleashed. I'm really excited about that. If we learn to properly apply the peace process that we're going to look at this morning from Matthew 18, then we can be built up to look more like Jesus, to radiate his love and his glory to others around us. It's a pretty awesome thing. I'm really excited about that. So within these verses, there's held the secret of Proverbs 27, verse 17. You say, what is that? Well, it's where men and women learn to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. We like that phrase, don't we? Iron sharpening iron. It's, it sounds cool. It's kind of poetic. But have you ever thought about the process of sharpening iron? How many of you have worked with metal before, done some fabrication, some welding? few of you, few of you know what that's like. It's fun work, but it also requires a lot of force, requires some big tools and sharp objects, right? Heat and pressure. Sharpening iron is violent. Working with metal is violent. There's sparks and heat and hammers and presses that press things with hundreds and thousands of pounds, right? It gives some context to this idea of iron sharpening iron, of being sharpened by our brothers and sisters. It might be kind of messy sometimes, violent sometimes even, hopefully not physically, but spiritually and emotionally, relationally. Along with that, if you know anything about working with metal, you know that it requires a high degree of precision. It's one of the reasons I don't love it. I'd rather work with wood. Most carpenters, if you talk to, if you're within an eighth, maybe a quarter, it's good enough, right? 
That's good enough. Not so with metal. We're talking thousands of an inch. If you're off, and then if you weld it, it warps and changes. You got to be precise. You got to be precise. And we've got to be precise with our text this morning. We got to be precise with our text this morning. If we're not precise, the end product will be warped. You'll be left with something unusable, right? We don't want unusable people in the hands of God. We want really useful tools in the chief mechanic's toolbox. We want to be built up into the image of Christ, be able to be used to live on purpose for Jesus. And that can happen, I believe, if we learn how to apply Matthew 18 properly. So let's read it together. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. You're probably familiar with these verses. It says this. If your brother sins against you, And some manuscripts don't have the phrase against you. So if your brother sins in general or sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter might be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind here on earth will be or will have been, one of the footnotes in your Bible will say that, will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose or loose on earth will be or will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Okay, I want to recap with you a little bit where we've been. Where we've been, we've been mostly focusing on ourselves. The last two weeks, we've been thinking about our own sinfulness, our own need for forgiveness, and this is huge, essential, if you and I are ever going to be in a position, if we're ever going to have the attitude, the humility, to confront other people about the sin in their life. If we don't get serious about our own need, we'll never be in a position to confront others about it as well. We'll be dead in the water before we even start. We'll come across like hammers when a scalpel is required. And last week we talked about a lot about learning how to overlook and absorb offenses. So some not conflict is necessary. Some of it we should never get into. We should learn to overlook and absorb offenses. And just to remind you how to kind of evaluate that, I gave you a couple questions. And this is from a guy named Ken Sandy. He wrote a book called The Peacemaker, which you can look that up on Amazon if you're interested. But he says, as a general rule, an offense should be overlooked if you can answer no to all of these questions. Is, it, is the offense seriously dishonoring to God? Has it permanently damaged a relationship Is it seriously hurting other people or the offender himself? And lastly, is it seriously harming his or her witness for Jesus? I think we got a slide with those questions on it if we could advance to that next one. If you can answer no to all of those questions, chances are it's an offense that should be absorbed and overlooked. Before we move on, I kind of want to take a little bit of a moment to, to pin a few of you down this morning. Some of you We'll use these questions or we'll use them as an opportunity to avoid conflict that shouldn't be avoided. Because some of y'all are conflict deniers, right? 
you, you run away from conflict. You don't want anything to do with conflict. So you run away. And some of you are, you, do, you, you fake peace when there isn't any peace. You fake it. Some of you are conflict escape artists. You exit conversations when they get difficult. Hey, honey, I, I'd really like to talk with you about the finances. Oh, no, sorry, I got to go shopping. Can't talk about it. Talk later. <laughs> they gone, right? You run away. You run away. Or, or, or your, your, your friend or, or loved one will, will bring up a question and, and they, they, they might say, not this again. I can't do this right now. I can't do this ever. And you, you, just, you just run away, right? You quit jobs to avoid conflict. Perhaps you've moved neighborhoods to get away from family feuds. You've left friend groups or maybe even a marriage. Maybe you've left a church. All in hopes that by getting rid of people, you can be rid of the drama and conflict in your life. Trade the drama, dramatic people out for some new folks. Let me just ask you, how's that working for you? How's that working? Denying real conflict, pretending like it doesn't exist, faking at peace, fleeing from it, chopping off friends, chopping off jobs, getting out of marriage, running away. How's that working? My guess is probably not real well. You might get away from it for a while, but the problem is you're running to new people. And new people means new problems, right? You can't get away from it. See, there's a time to overlook and absorb an offense. There is, absolutely. But if you can answer yes to any of the questions that I highlighted, is it offensive to God? Does it uh, ruin the testimony of their witness for Jesus? Um, I'll give them again. Has it permanently damaged a relationship? Is it seriously hurting other people? If you can answer yes to any of those, it's not something that you can overlook. You say, okay, that's helpful. That's helpful, but I'm still, I still don't know. I still don't know if, I need, if this conflict is necessary. Well, along with that, another thing, another good indication that you might have to engage in a tough conversation is if you have bitterness in your heart. Now, bitterness is kind of a churchy word, but essentially just means this. It means if, if you find yourself not being able to give the benefit of the doubt to someone anymore, if you find yourself continually frustrated with another person, you can only see the worst in them, right? There, chances are you've got a root of bitterness in your heart. It means there's, that there's probably a conversation that, that needs to be had. If you think, well, I'll forgive them because I know Jesus wants me to, but I don't want anything to do with them. You might have some bitterness in your heart. If you can't honestly say that you want God to bless that other person and not curse them, you might have a root of bitterness in your heart. And it's time to begin the journey of Matthew 18. So don't use the overlooking and avoiding conflict as an excuse to not engage in necessary conflicts. There are, there are times and places where it is necessary for you to, to press in on people. So before we get into what that process looks like, I want to look at verse 15 with you and see what the end goal is. Verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go show him his fault just between the two of you. And if he listens, you have won your brother over. Verse 15 says that you move towards someone who has sinned against you with an aim to win them over or to win them back. The meaning of this is, is really twofold. The first has to do with salvation. See, when we're talking about sin, sin will always take you farther than you ever intended to go. Every single time. Sin builds on sin. It's a lion 
that is crouching at your door, the Bible says. It's all-consuming. It doesn't just want a part of you. It wants all of you. No one wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I'm going to embezzle millions of dollars from my boss today. No, it's a slow fade. It builds on tiny sins, small decisions. No one wakes up in the morning and says, man, you know it would be a great idea if I cheat on my spouse today. No, no. No, it builds on one another. It builds. It'll always take you farther than you ever intended to go. So Matthew 18 says that you and I have a responsibility to be on the lookout for this lion in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a responsibility to protect them, to help protect them from themselves, to allow sin to run rampant in someone else's life and say nothing, right? I'm just, I just mind my own business here. That's none of my business. I'm just not going to say anything. Saying nothing is not a neutral action. It's not just unloving. It's actually hateful. It's actually hateful. You say, come on, how so? Well, let me illustrate it like this. If my son picks up a knife and decides it's going to be a good idea to go play out in the middle of the street, I would be a terrible father if I sat on my porch and said nothing. Horrible. I would also be a terrible father if I picked up a baseball bat and said, all right, son, we're going to learn you here, right? Knock some sense into it, you boy. You're not going to do that again. Neither one of those responses is right. And sometimes that's what we do. Sometimes we, we either fly off the handle and abuse someone, which is not an appropriate response to confronting sin, or we say nothing. Oh, you don't want to rock the boat, right? Which would be like a doctor. You go in, you get a scan, he sees cancer, and he just can't bring himself to let you know what he found. That's not just unloving. It's hateful. It's malpractice. You ought to find a different doctor, right? He can't afford to, to rock the boat. He's too afraid about being uncomfortable. That's not a doctor who cares for you. That's what we're talking about here. If I were a good father, I would run out into the street, pick up my son. I'd take the knife from him. Give me that knife. What are you doing? I'd pick him up. I'd say, son, you see that squirrel over there? Yeah? You see how its guts are outside of its body? Yeah, I see that. Do you know how that happened? He got hit by a car. I don't want you to get hit by a car. You can't play in the street, son. Right? Some of you are like, I need to pray for Levi's kids. You do. You do. They're going to need therapy. They might. But at least they'll be alive to go through it, right? We can address that issue later. That's what, that's what Matthew 18 is calling us to. To love people enough to have difficult, maybe uncomfortable conversations to protect them. To protect them from bad ideas, from sin in their life. That's the goal of this process. Protection. But it's more than that. It's more than that. See, sin will not only destroy the person, it will also destroy your relationship and the relationships of a bunch of other people around the situation. I'm sure many of us have lost relationships because of sin. And for a lot of us, if you're honest, you're probably glad to be rid of them. Right? How many of you thought, I hate them? And then you think, wow, Jesus, I can't say that. I'll forgive them, but I don't want to ever see them again. I get it. I've been there. I realize the level of hurt that we can inflict on one another. But I'm going to say this in love. What if Jesus took that attitude towards you? What if that's how Jesus related with to you? I'm glad to be rid of him. I don't want anything to do with them. I never want to see him again. If he did that, you and I would be lost forever. Eternally separated from God. But praise the Lord, that is not how he chose to interact with us. He moved towards you and he moved towards me when we hurt him. Horribly, 
He moved towards us in love. He moved towards us to save us from the destruction of sin, to forgive us. And he went further than just forgiveness, right? He didn't just make peace with us and say, okay, uh, you just stay over there. I'll stay over here. I'll just tolerate you. No, Jesus said, I forgive you and I want to have a relationship with you. He restored the relationship. He invited us back into to friendship. He did more than that. He united himself to us with his spirit. People who wounded him, who murdered him, who slandered his name. Fill in any terrible thing that's happened to you. We did that to Jesus. Jesus says, I hate that, but I love you. And I still want a relationship with you. I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you. Come back, have a relationship with me. Church, this was the goal of Matthew 18. To protect our fellow Christians against sin and to restore what sin breaks. You can't just say, I forgive you, but I don't want anything to do with you. That's not the attitude that Jesus wants us to have here. That's not the heart of Matthew 18. The heart of Matthew 18 is a radical love displayed by Jesus that says, I know what you did and I really need you to know how much it hurt, but I forgive you. And if it's possible, I'd like to have you in my life. I'd like to still maintain this relationship. Now, I realize that this isn't possible sometimes, right? We can't control people's responses. I also realize that there are situations where boundaries need to be set up so that further abuse doesn't happen, that type of thing. But generally speaking, reconciliation is the goal. Not just tolerating people, but restoring the relationship. Restoring what got fractured and broken by sin. That's the goal. That's the goal of this process. I want to move on and look at the people who this process is for. Matthew 18 says that the process, the peace process, is for brothers and sisters. That means professing believers in Christ. I'm not saying that there's never a time to talk to unbelievers about sin and about salvation. Obviously, there is. But I think you'll find that confronting unbelievers about disobeying a God that they don't believe in to be relatively unproductive, okay? There's, there's a lot of work to be done there, but it's a different kind of work. It's not the kind of work that's outlined in Matthew 18. This process is for people who profess to be Christians, which we live in a society where a lot of people profess to be Christians. So maybe, maybe that opens up the doors a little wider than, say, if we were in a persecuted church where it costs a little bit more to make that profession. So we could talk about that. But generally speaking, this is for people who claim to be Christian, who you go to church with, who you have close relationships with. And while it isn't explicitly stated in Matthew 15, I think it's, it's implied or expected. Um, verse, verse 15, it, it assumes that you're close enough to the, to the offender in a relationship, in community, you're close enough to see the issue firsthand. It means you didn't hear about it at the coffee shop, right? You didn't hear it through the, the grapevine or through the prayer meeting that sometimes is more of gossip than it is prayer. It's not gossip or hearsay. You witnessed whatever it is you feel the need to talk about. And church, this is why community and doing life together is so stinking important. I hope all of you are bonding beyond Sunday morning. I know that's really cheesy. I know it is. Bond beyond Sunday morning. That is a, a goal that we have for all of you here at Crossroads, your leadership. We want you to connect beyond sitting next to one another in chairs on Sunday. You say, why? Well, because you can show up on Sunday. You guys look great, right? You're all cleaned up. You're pretty. 
walk by. How are you doing, Levi? I'm good. Super, super blessed. How are you? Rainbows and unicorns, right? Fantastic. Doing great. Good. Have a good week. Then you can go on your way. That's the extent of our interaction. But those of you, those of you who are in connecting groups, investing in meaningful relationships outside of Sunday morning, you'll know that when some of you show up and you say, how is it? Everything's great. You'll say, you know, that's not true. Everything is not fine. Everything is not okay. People are close enough to know what's actually going on in your life. Some of you got a serious anger problem at work. Some of you have drinking problems. Some of you have hate in your heart towards your father or your mother or both. Some of you are on the verge of divorce in your marriage. Some of you got a back and forth between a neighbor, right? Feuding. Some of you all reckless with money on the verge of bankruptcy. All of us, we're not fine. We look fine on Sunday morning, but no one's fine here. We're not fine. We don't have it all together. Many of us, if not all of us, have serious sin in our life. Some of it that we're aware of and some that we're completely blind to, completely ignorant of. Now I realize it is a very scary thing to be known, really known. If they know me, will they still love me? That's the question. My hope and prayer is that this is a safe place for you to be known, for who you are, for you to have people in your life here that know your junk. You've got it. I got it. I got it. I want you to be close enough with other people so that they know your junk, you know their junk, and we can help one another, encourage one another to run to Jesus with that junk. To make the greatest trade ever in the history of transactions, right? You trade your junk in for his life. You get his joy for your junk. You get his holiness for your sin. You make that trade with Jesus. I want all of you to be known by several other believers so when you're falling off the wagon, and you're going to fall off the wagon. When you don't know it, somebody can say, dude, you're falling off. Get back on here. And they will drag you back up onto the wagon for Jesus. Get rid of that junk. Trade it in for the joy of Jesus. You don't need that, right? I want you to be in relationship enough so that you can be honest with one another. When you see an area that one of your brothers or sisters might not be able to see, they're blind to it. That's what's going on here in Matthew 18, 15. The people doing the confronting, they know the person well. They're living life in close proximity to one another. They eat together. They share meals. They call one another. They hang out. They do life together. Enough that it gets messy. They're close enough that they've been hurt. They can get hurt. They're bringing first-hand knowledge of sin or an offense. And they aren't bringing it to condemn or crush. They're expressing concern gently, in private. That's a big one in private, in hopes to win the person over, to win them back. Sin will always take you farther than you ever intend to go. Win them back. Restore the relationship. Make sense? So that's the goal. That's who this process is for. Now, what is the process exactly? Well, Matthew 18, verse 15 says, you've seen a concerning behavior in someone that you're a friend with, you're close to in proximity, who claims to be a Christian, and you decide because you love them, you know sin will always take people farther than they intend to go. You decide it's time to bring the issue to their attention. So you set up a meeting 
in private, just the two of you. You sit down with them. And in love, you say, hey, I've noticed sometimes you seem to really speak harshly with your wife. Talk to me about that. Am I seeing this right? Is that an issue that you've got? I've noticed, I've noticed you, you seem, your, your wife and kids seem to, they seem to be really struggling. You seem to be putting a lot of hours in at work. Am I, am I right here? Are you more concerned about making money than being present at home? Talk to me about that. Talk to me about that. I'm concerned about this. I ran across some browsing history. We got to talk. We got to talk. Are you okay? I've seen this behavior. It concerns me. Here's where it leads, right? Remember the squirrel? Guts outside. We want those inside. I see where this leads. You okay? You okay? In love, you have a conversation. You make your concern known. In love, you speak truth. In love. In love. The goal is restoration. You give the person the ability to push back. Am I seeing this right? Help me understand. Church, this might, all, this might be all that's ever required. Through this gentle wake-up call, you might have sharpened your fellow Christian, right? Made them better. They might thank you and say, I didn't know. I didn't even see. I was getting sucked. I didn't know. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. Will you help me? Help me fix this, right? They might repent. Turn. Help me. Put a plan in. Let's do this. Let's change. I want to conform to Jesus and what the Word says. Help me. That might happen, and praise Jesus if it does. You've won a brother or sister back. You've won them over. You've gained a family member. Praise the Lord. Or they might respond poorly. Who the heck are you? Get your nose out of my business. You don't even know what you're talking about. Once you worry about the own, once you worry about the log in your own eye, you're familiar with that, right? Levi talked about that last week. You got a log in your face. Log face, get out of here. Don't worry about my speck, right? Get out. Then they justify, they explain away. Oh yeah, but you don't understand. Here's what actually, they don't own anything. They're hard-hearted. They don't own anything. At that point, it's time to double back. Maybe you missed it. Maybe you saw it wrongly. That could happen. You drop it. It's an offense that needs to be absorbed or overlooked. All right, I had a conversation. I see their point. I don't think I was right there. Or say, no, I think there is something there. Then... Verse 16 says, if he will not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This does not mean that you go find a coalition of people that hate this person as much as you do, (laughs) right? Hey, so-and-so, this guy's the worst. Yeah, he's the worst. Let's get him, right? No, that's not the goal of this. You find godly, objective people who have relationship enough to confirm the evidence of the situation and in love... Not to heap it on in condemnation, correct, in love, you go to them. You make the issue known. Johnny, we're concerned for you. We've all seen this type of behavior in you. Not just, not just one. We, we've all seen that. You said this. You, you did this. Actually, what you did, it, it hurt a lot of us. It hurt a lot of us. We believe you're living contrary to what God has said in his word. Here's the issue. We think you need some help. We think you need to repent. We think you need to to turn away from this thing. At that point, the person may realize, you know what? I was wrong. You're right. Please help me. Help me live like Jesus. I'm trying. I just keep failing my breakdown. And then the process of reconciliation, forgiveness can happen. It's beautiful. Praise the Lord. Or they might dig their heels in. You guys don't know anything. Get out of here. And that's when you go to the elders of the church. 
reevaluate again. Maybe you guys missed it. That could be. Or maybe not. If deemed necessary, the church gets to confront the issue. If he refuses, verse 17, to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to even listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If the, refusing, if the person refuses to be in sin, to have any issue, they're still hard-hearted. When there is a very clear scriptural issue going on here, they're, they're speaking in a way they shouldn't, living in a way that they shouldn't. Matthew 18 says that the church is to treat such a person as a tax collector or a Gentile. It's a pagan, unbeliever. It's kind of, it's hard words. But thankfully, Jesus lived his whole life modeling how we treat such folks, right? He kind of changed the whole paradigm of how the religious people treated pagans and tax collectors. Why are you eating with them, Jesus? He ate with them. He loved them. He lived with them. He told the gospel to them, the good news. That's what we're called to do. We're called to inform the individual that we are seriously concerned for their salvation. Dude, I don't know, I don't know if you're a Christian or not, Right? You're, you're not living under the lordship of Jesus. You're not practicing repentance. You call attention, not, you're not exercising your own judgment here. You're calling attention to what God has said in his word. You see, the church, if, 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 it's, if this is the case, if someone is proclaiming to be a Christian, has not been uh, responsive to people who've talked to them, and then the leadership, at that point, the church has a responsibility to to withhold communion from them at very least. Because there's a very danger here that if an unbeliever takes communion, they're not actually drinking grace down upon themselves. They're drinking judgment because they don't know Jesus yet. You say, that's, that's harsh. I think that's what verse 18 is talking about. And this is where there's a lot of confusion. Verse 18 says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be or will have been. I think that's really helpful. I wish they would have put that in instead of the, in the footnote. Will have been bound. In heaven, whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. You see, human beings do not have the power to control or manipulate God. We're not magicians. God is not a genie. Humans and church leaders don't have the power to forgive sins. I can't forgive your sins. I can't absolve you. You shouldn't ask me for that. I can't do that. I can't grant forgiveness either. But the church is called to teach and preach God's will from the Bible and the good news of Jesus. See, the gospel says if you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. All your sins will be forgiven. The grace will transform your life. will give you a humble heart. You'll desire to live in obedience to what he said. It also says that if you don't believe in Jesus, you'll display a hard heart that is unwilling to submit to Christ as Lord. He says, for those people, you're not saved. Jesus himself said, good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. He said, you'll know, you'll know them by their fruit. So the church, when affirming a believer or questioning whether someone who has professed faith is actually a Christian, binding or loosing, they're not actually withholding forgiveness or granting forgiveness. They're trying to line up with what's already true in heaven. Right? Does that make sense? So when the church, guided by the Spirit, guarded by the love of Jesus, seeks to apply the scriptures to a situation, what we're trying to do is, is look at the Bible and see if your life lines up with it. And if it doesn't, we're trying to call a spade a spade, so to speak. 
We're not withholding forgiveness. We also can't grant it. We're just trying to say, this is what God says. So it's like this. If someone came to me and he said, I'm a Christian, I said, that's awesome. Why do you think that? If you died today and went to heaven, or if you died today, why would God let you into heaven? Sometimes people say, because I'm good, right? Not that directly, but essentially, oh, I try to be a good person. And at that point, I'll say, ah, brother, you're not a Christian. I'll say, how dare you? I'll say, no, I love you. I'm not withholding forgiveness from you. God is. God is. Because here's what he said in his word. If you want to know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven, it's based upon not what you've done. It's based upon what Jesus has done for you and having faith in him. So I'm not withholding forgiveness there. I'm just saying, no, this is, this is what the gospel says. Or likewise, are you a Christian? Yeah, why? Because well, I love Jesus. I'm not perfect, but I try. I say, okay, let's look at your life. Yeah, okay, you're not perfect. Neither am I, right? You're not, but boy, you are trying. You're trying to apply the scriptures. You're trying your best to love Jesus. And when you fail, you acknowledge your sin and you, you turn from it. Yeah, I think you are. And in good conscience, I would say, it's not for me to grant someone salvation. I can't do that. But from what the Bible says, sure, sure seems like you ought to have some confidence that you're going to heaven when you die. That's what this is talking about. We're not withholding forgiveness or granting it. We're trying to affirm or the opposite of that from what the Bible says. I recognize, see how messy this is, right? You see why there's a lot of destructive stuff that's happened because of this? I realize that the end of this process is not a fun one. I get that. Honestly, the whole process really isn't that fun. It's usually pretty uncomfortable. They're hard conversations. They're risky, messy. But if we love one another, we will commit to have them with one another. Church, do you love these people enough? Look at the one, look at the people you're sitting next to. Look at them. Look at them. Do you love them enough to get in their life, to let them know when you have a concern, right? Love is willing to risk the relationship for the good of the soul. Love is willing to enter into hard conversations for the good of other people. Matt Chandler said it like this. He said, it is cheap love that avoids and runs from necessary conflict. It is real love that says, I hate this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know this is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable for both of us. I, I wanted to puke all day thinking about it, but I know I, know I got to have this conversation with you. It's probably not going to be easy to hear, but will you listen? I love you. I love you. I've got to say this. And then you speak the truth to build up your brother and sister in Christ, to sharpen them, to make them look more like Jesus, to win them back, to win them back. Can you imagine what would happen to this place if we took this seriously? If we got serious about this level of life together, and it's happening, but I want to see it happen more. If we love one another enough to call each other out, to sought, if we sought not to just tolerate one another, but to be reconciled, in relationships. The band can come up. We'll wrap this thing up. Again, Matt Chandler said, in a sermon I listened to on this particular subject, he said, they will know we are Christians by our love. Because when we're frustrated with someone, we won't hurt up with everyone else and complain about them or talk bad about them or talk about their weaknesses in a group, but we'll love them enough to sit down with them privately, to go to them and say, hey, can I ask you a question? Is this going on? I just picked up on this. I'm a little nervous for you. I love you. I'm concerned this is going to end here. The squirrel. And then maybe they're like, hey, I can handle it. 
I can handle it. Bring it. Tell me. Tell me. I know you love me. I know you're here for a good reason. Tell me what's up. It's hard to hear, but tell me what's going on. Right? The gates just opened up. You've gained a brother back. And if not, then you can head down the long process of seeking to win them over, involving friends, eventually involving church leadership. And if at the end of that, they still won't see the light, it might be time to call their faith into question. That's a big deal. It's a huge deal. But think of it like this. If someone claims to be a Christian, but by all accounts never lives according to anything that the Bible says, doesn't display Christ's likeness, doesn't even display a desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. They think they're a believer, but then they die and they meet the Lord and they realize that they weren't. Would it have been better for you to remain silent or to risk the relationship and make them aware of the situation in love? so that they might change their, their eternal destiny. That's what's at stake here. I don't like having these conversations. Honestly, I haven't had that many, but I have. Some have went well. I've won some brothers back, and sometimes I haven't, and that stinks. It stinks bad. But that's what Jesus would do. That's what he did for me. That's what he did for all of us. We need to pray. We need to pray. Because if we're not guided by the Spirit in this, we will make a mess of things. We will. But if we're guided by the Spirit and guarded by the love of Christ, we will win many back. Family members. Restored relationships. Friends in heaven. Let's pray. Father, this is tough. This is so tough. Lord, the people that harm us, it's not our natural desire to want to have anything to do with them. We want to be rid of them. We want to hold grudges against them. Makes us feel good, Lord. That is not what we're called to. And apart from you, we don't have any power to change that. So Lord, would you change our hearts? Would you change our hearts specifically towards the people that have wronged us? Would you make us aware of our own sin? Would you fix our eyes on you and what you've done for us? And may that truth, the truth of the gospel, the good news that while we were still sinners, you didn't stay far off. You moved towards us in love, not just to forgive us, but to be restored in relationship with us. May that compel us, Lord, to move towards those who've hurt us in love, to speak the truth, but to do so in the most gentle and kind way possible. Lord, we want to win people back. We want to win people to you. And we want to win back the lost, broken relationships that all of us have in here from people that have harmed us. You know what they are. And you know what you want us to do. Would you empower us to do it, Father, for your glory and our joy? Amen.